0: What's out there right now keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together? So, thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's gonna support. We appreciate it. So, I know it's the middle of March, but we're gonna talk about ski season because it's important. I mean, it's a ritual, and rituals, especially this year, were important. For me, uh, I know our family, it it got us through the winter. The winters here are really dark in Seattle, and if it weren't for skiing, I think we might've gone bonkers with uh, just kind of being on, not full lockdown, but we were, you know, our stay was pretty tight. Um, And I just remember when it first started snowing in November, just that buzz, and then it started snowing kind of for real, and then it started snowing for real, for real in February. And I would say we took about the biggest advantage of it as possible. And, um, you know, I took it as a good sign that I waxed more skis and more snowboards this year. And I changed the batteries in our beacons uh, because we used them enough that they went down. That was a good sign, too. Um, And we totally, fully maximized to the best of our ability nights at the resort parked in our trailer. um, Just celebrating, you know, the boys getting older, being a part of that, watching it all happen, watching them surpass us. For us, the ski season, although I'm really ready for the sunshine, I'm waving goodbye to you and saying thank you because this was a special year. And to celebrate today, we've got two shorts. Yes, you heard me right. Not one, but two. We're crazy. I know. That's how it's going to be this year. We're going to be crazy. Both are about the constant balancing act, out on the slopes and in life. I'm Fitzko Hall, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. The first short is from Carly Rushford.
1: All around me, it was wet and somewhat frozen. I should have been able to see all the stars in the clear night sky, yet I couldn't quite get my eyes to focus. Heart racing, belly down on the packed snow, I pawed in front of me, desperate for a way out. But my hands couldn't latch on to anything. Struggling to catch my breath, it was becoming increasingly clear I wasn't getting out on my own. I was stuck, waist deep, in the pee hole. My first memory of skiing didn't actually take place on skis. It comes from a picture my dad kept in his work planner. I'm 11 months old, mostly bald, with ears so big my mom joked I could pick up FM radio stations. My dad, mouth full of adult braces, carries me in one arm and uses his other to hold a giant Corona beer to my lips. That photo became a staple of my childhood and somehow was a hallmark to me that skiing equaled cool. Growing up in Washington, D.C., I didn't get tons of experience hitting the slopes each winter. The majority of my exposure to the sport was through the occasional Warren Miller movie and old photos of my dad and his brother doing backflips in bright red ski suits and giant rimmed Oakley sunglasses. It wasn't until I moved west to Portland, Oregon after college that I had my first real ski season. 20 whole days. I was hooked. But as my friends started to show interest in the backcountry, I boldly claimed, oh, I'm never doing that. The backcountry seemed untouchable, full of avalanches, steep terrain, and stressful decision-making situations. But after a few years, FOMO kicked in. I signed up for an Avalanche 1 certification class with my three roommates. During the course, we talked about risk management and how to assess the snowpack. Our instructor, Danger Dave, taught us new vocabulary, words like whoomphing and shooting cracks, both indicators that the snow is unstable and unstable snow means a higher chance for avalanches. On par with old photos of my dad and the Warren Miller movies, the backcountry ski scene is still incredibly male-dominated. As I got into the backcountry, I learned that being surrounded by guys pushes me in a way I love, and I've lucked out with some amazing group dynamics, especially with my male friends we have always tackled the risk assessment as a team. We've summited volcanoes and skied chutes, but we've also bailed on multi-day hut trips and rerouted a week that was going to be spent in a tiny alpine cabin due to a snowpack that was deemed electric. Not a word you want to read when looking at the avalanche forecast. But other times, being the only woman in a group of guys can bring out all my insecurities and make me question my ability, knowledge, and competence. Will I be too slow today? What if I can't ski the line they choose? What if I have to be the one who makes everyone turn around? To compensate for those worries, I ensure I am the best possible ski partner, always equipped with loads of tasty snacks and an overly positive attitude. Who wouldn't want to spend a day with the girl who brings an entire loaf of freshly baked banana bread and is stoked to ski through a torrential downpour? In these moments of insecurity, my vulnerability has been an essential tool. It's become fundamental in my backcountry experience. Similar to discussing snowpack and route options, being vulnerable takes practice and courage. It means advocating for myself even when it's hard to speak up. When packing for one trip, where the emphasis fell on moving fast and carrying only the essentials, I defended my need for three different sports bras to a confused-looking group of guys who were only bringing one pair of ski socks each. Thankfully, they didn't fight me on the bras, but they did question, and eventually veto, my request to bring a hardback copy of Becoming by Michelle Obama. When you're the only female on an all-male trip, there are some discrepancies that come to light beyond just the need for sports bras. Biological differences strike again, but this time in respect to outdoor bathroom choices. Men can simply stand and pee into a snowbank. For us, it's not so simple. As a woman, you want a flat area, concave if you're feeling fancy, so your bottom doesn't go numb in the snow as you do your business. It wasn't until I took my first backcountry hut trip that I understood the importance of a pee zone. On day trips, I'd gotten used to stepping off the trail, finding a somewhat blocked spot, and squatting down. For multi-day trips, you don't really want everyone peeing all over the place because not only are you collecting snow for water, but it also becomes aesthetically unappealing pretty fast. Last January, I went on my first ever female-dominated backcountry ski trip. My friend Katie secured a permit in the infamous Alpine Club of Canada Lottery to spend a week at a magical 20-person hut in the Selkirk Mountains, accessible only by helicopter. It wasn't until we arrived at the base that the helicopter pilot realized the women outnumbered the men 11 to nine. As we piled our gear and mountain of food boxes, it was hard to contain the giddy excitement. Our new home was perfect. Nestled in a basin surrounded by massive snowy peaks, there was a big kitchen downstairs and an open group bunk room on the top floor. It was a dream come true, a week-long slumber party with all my friends. Outside the cabin, a slightly crooked wooden sign read P in big white letters. With an absolutely stunning mountain view, key for any outdoor bathroom area. It was an ideal walking distance from our hut. Far enough away that we didn't have any lingering scent or view of the yellow snow, but close enough that we could walk there in our slippers. And like any bathroom, it needs a refresh. At home, it might be a new roll of teepee or a Lysol cleanse to remove the red mold ring in the toilet bowl. In the Canadian backcountry, It meant a blanket of new snow every few days. Nine men peeing in their waist-high snowbank for a week? No problem. They can easily pile snow on top, giving it a daily refresh and keeping it clean. Eleven women squatting in the same zone, saturating the snow, and slowly melting it down? That required some maintenance. We joked that, similar to our assessments of the snowpack during the day, we needed to check the pee holes for signs of instability. Had we seen any shooting cracks? Had anyone felt any whooping? We spent a week in paradise. Seven days out of cell service, skiing fresh powder, cooking delicious meals in our finest costumes, and cleaning the kitchen while dancing to Lizzo's newest album. And always, the nights ended with a ladies' trip to the P-Zone before getting into our sleeping bags in the group bunk room. On our last night at the hut, after a few more cocktails than usual, I linked arms with my friends Emma and Kirsa as we walked down our slippery steps to the P-Zone. We took a moment to pause, and look up at the clear sky. I took a deep breath and felt incredibly lucky to be present in that moment. 12 steps down and two steps to the left and we arrived in the zone. We pulled down our pants to pee, laughing and chatting. One moment I was squatting down and the next, bam! My left knee gave out and my entire leg sunk down into the soft snow. It took me a moment to realize what had happened. I was waist-deep in snow. I was waist-deep in THE snow, in the snow that had been collecting pee from 11 women over the past week. I panicked and tried to pull myself out, but my foot had nothing to grab onto. Flailing. I tried to brace myself against my stomach, but I couldn't move. I had fallen in too deep. Thinking back to the snow instability we had joked about a few days prior, I had ignored all the warning signs. I should have seen this coming. Emma, Kirsa, and I could not stop laughing. After a few seconds, we regained our composure. They each grabbed one of my arms and pulled me straight forward. Kirsa reached back in to grab the lone straggler. My left down slipper. Falling in the peehole reinforced the delicate balance in a mountain partnership between moments of levity and moments of seriousness. I realized that vulnerability comes in all different forms whether that's waist deep in the pee hole negotiating a sports bra into my packing list, or staring down an intimidating line we're about to ski. It's in those instances that I build trust. And through trust, I develop strong and lasting partnerships. I've learned that when I fall down or in, I have the strength to laugh, ask for help, and get back on my feet. I'm Carly Rushford, and this is my short.
0: Thank you, Carly. We hope you get waist deep in fresh powder next time. After a short break, we'll hear from our friend Patty O, a.k.a. Patty O'Connell. Stay with us. Support for the diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking give it a try you save 30 percent off your first subscription order at ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries once again that's ketone.com backslash dirtbag diaries the link is in the show notes please check it out
2: ski season my favorite time of year is here but man oh man does it look different I keep holding my breath, hoping no one upsets the fruit basket and resorts aren't forced to shut down, and holy hell have the lift lines exploded. I mean, I get it. Social distancing and COVID protocols mean gondola cabins and chairs are sometimes loaded with only one skier, and rightfully so. But that means lines are longer. Wait times are longer. And there's not much we skiers loathe more than lift lines. I despise cow-eyed single-file standing and sluggish shuffling. I'd rather take a Mike Tyson uppercut to my bathing suit area than be stuck in traffic. The thing that keeps us skiers frustratingly close to and somehow as far away as we'll ever be from skiing deserves its own special circle in Dante's Inferno. Remember what happened back in February of 2020? Following one of the resort's deepest snowfalls in its history, skiers at Vail waited for hours in a crowd that ballooned so big you would have thought the lift operators were handing out wads of hundreds and an affordable place to live. The internet deemed it THE LIFT LINE APOCALYPSE! At the time, I felt sorry for those skiers. We all did. That's the worst thing that could ever happen, we all thought. A lift line during a pandemic? That is a whole different beast. Think about it. Since the pandemic started, when's the last time you stood within arm's length of anyone, let alone in a crowd of strangers that didn't cause more anxiety than a middle school dance your parents were chaperoning? Pandemic lift lines make me very nervous. In many ways, I've been stuck inside a pretty nauseating cycle of fear during this ski season, but this isn't the first time skiing has looked seemingly less than awesome. So, won't you come with me on this time machine of nostalgic insight, pals? Let's gun this sucker to 88 and head into the past. I grew up in the Midwest, but I did not grow up skiing in the Midwest, or skiing at all. Like my face fur, my love for skiing came to me in my early 20s. I moved to Colorado in October of 2007. 23 years old, I had fallen in love with the sport on a three-day springtime ski trip to Telluride a few months prior. The plan was to work for the ski resort in Telluride and after the season, return back home to Chicago to get a real job after I had figured it out, whatever the hell it is. But I got hooked and I stayed. A classic retelling of the age-old ski bum story. Boy falls in love with skiing. Boy moves to ski town. Boy gets perma goggle tan. Boy stays in mountains forever. Or so I thought. Instead, my skiing life backtracked when I was 29, while my personal life moved into a new future, albeit a terrifying one at the time. I moved from my beloved Telluride, Colorado to St. Paul, Minnesota to get sober. Going to rehab and moving into sober living was scary enough, but trading the precipitous, dramatic peaks of the San Juans for the miniature hills of the Twin Cities was pretty depressing. I knew that if I used the same Telluride ruler to measure a good ski day in the Midwest, I'd be more disappointed than a Bears fan during the playoffs. But before I could even wrap my head around what skiing the Midwest would look like, I had to get my skis. Along with all my earthly possessions, all of my gear was still in Colorado. Maybe it's different for other people, but I did not pack to go to rehab. I'd left Telluride for a post-ski season pre-summer vacation. All I brought with me was a barely-packed red backpack, a few t-shirts and a pair of jeans, and maybe like a sock and a half. On the other hand, the baggage of living life on the edge of oblivion, constantly drunk and high since I was a teenager running and numbing myself from the terror and darkness of alcoholic demons, well, that was all packed neatly inside my body in an emotional U-Haul. Or 57 emotional U-Hauls. I exploded in drunken chaos in front of friends and family during that vacation, which led to an intervention, which led to rehab in Minnesota, which led to moving into a sober house in St. Paul with nothing but that sparsely packed red backpack, a bunch of unbridled emotions, and a lot of Well, what the hell happens now? Anxiety. It was fall when my pals boxed up my belongings in Colorado and sent them to Minnesota. My life fit onto a pallet, a 40 by 48 inch rectangle of coarse wood and rusty nails. It was more than a absurd and sad sight, but I was ecstatic to see my skis. A pair of Wagner customs, 193 centimeters of pure beauty, navy stripes hugged by dark cherry red buttresses and Art Deco piping on tip and tail. In Colorado, they arced huge, strong, fast, crud-busting turns. They were a symbol of mountain ruggedness, a must-have for any Telluride local, a two-planked emblem of skiba majesty. In Minnesota, they were, uh, overkill. I mean, ski blades felt like too much ski for the Midwest. An area of our country panned often for many things, and definitely by the ski community as being a region of inadequacy and scarcity. And I'm no idiot, I understand why. Midwestern ski resorts are actually ski hills. That is to say, there are more three-turn trails than there are not, and very often those three turns could be one. Chair lifts are typically hand-me-downs from western resorts that look like some kind of rusty carnival ride reject. The lifties are grizzled and growling, and the chairs, which must be constructed of 4,000 pounds of battleship steel each, feel like a cannon blast to your back when they scoop you up. Plus, snow in the Midwest is slushy, or icy, or somewhere in between, and very rapidly turns from fleecy white to gloppy gobs of discolored yuck. So what, in the hell, was I going to do with my prize Colorado skis on terrain and in conditions like that? First, I just straight-lined everything to try to feel some speed. Then, I tried to drop my hip as close to the icy groomer as possible in one gigantic giant slalom turn. Then I tried the icy bumps. That was a mistake. Then I tried the park. That was more of a mistake. I was trying, but I just wasn't getting that same feeling that seemed to come so easily in Colorado. I thought on what I love about skiing, down to the minute details. And that's when I realized my favorite thing about skiing is not the dramatic peaks huge snowfalls, face shots, endless perfect creamy corduroy, or any number of things that saturate the western ski experience. Though, to be clear, I do really, really, really love all those things, like a lot. My most beloved aspect of skiing is the very first thing that hooked me, the turn, specifically the right-footed slav. The first time I felt the energetic zippy spring from a flex ski travel through my legs and hit like a thousand pound 4th of July rocket in the center of my heart, my whole life transformed. And since, I've directed my entire existence to the pursuit of the turn, that turn, that feeling. Every single day I skied in the Midwest, I tried to find a spot on the hill where I could skid into a deep angle, let my tails slide out before snapping them back underneath me as drapes of chalky wash flung into the air and enveloped me. And every day I achieved that, even just one turn like that was as good a day as any I'd ever had. Maybe even better, because if you don't like skiing in the Midwest, you don't really like skiing at all. I needed in my newfound sobriety during that first winter in Minnesota, ending a lifelong sprint away from those alcoholic demons and depression and suicidal ideation, turning toward the emptiness, the anger, the fear, and working my way toward the light. And I skied a lot of one-turn slarves on 200 feet of ice masquerading as snow. A side-by-side comparison to my winters back in Colorado would have made my Midwestern ski season seem like one of those hairless, wrinkly cats, just odd enough to be interesting. But every day on those hills, every turn on my Wagners, was a re-examination and rejuvenation of my passion for skiing, and a realization that life and skiing was far more fun without booze and drugs. What is true about skiing in the Midwest is true about tiny positive moments in early sobriety. Given some grace and space, the minutia accumulates into something grander. Because in a land of scarcity, morsels feel like meals. Weeks after that lift line at Vail, blammo, every ski resort in the country shut down. And now, here we are today, masked, hugless, high fiveless, standing in a socially distant horde at the base of ski resorts with nothing but fear to keep us company. That lift line at Vail looks <sighs> so goddamn beautiful. We've never been so lucky. We could enjoy the communal stoke of a double-stuffed Powder Day lift line without fear. Hell, my mustache could have gotten stuck in someone's beard like industrial Velcro, and I would have felt okay about it. I miss bloated lift lines like that. But that thing that helped my Midwestern skiing is the same thing that helps me today. Feeling happy rather than fearful, even just feeling okay, has less to do with circumstances and much more to do with a change in perspective. What I hold on to when life is upended is often something familiar. There's reassurance in the things I know. There's a moment in skiing that I love, that I wish I could stay in forever. After I lean my body over my tips, I turn maybe two or three times and pick my best line. And then, undoubtedly, I mistime a turn or hit a rock. I get bucked from that predetermined line. I'm off balance and struggling. And then and some kind of unconscious competence, i let that all go. I sink comfortably into a rhythm outside of myself, a dance between me and the mountain and the snow. I look forward to what's in front of my tips, toward the horizon, toward what is just out of sight. No matter the conditions, the unexpected obstacles, I have faith in my ability to artfully handle whatever comes next. It's all in the turn. My name is Patty O'Connell, but you can call me Patty O. And this is my short.
0: Thank you, Patty and Carly, for sharing your stories. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story please give us a shout you can use the submission form on our website dirtbagdiaries.com i we really cannot express how many ideas we get from all of you and uh i think we looked it up and i think we're we're almost 300 episodes deep at this stage which is crazy and so many of them have been driven by you so please think of us think about your friends think about those good stories you hear similar way music today by bradley carter published the quest and brendan o'connell Tracks are courtesy of the artists themselves or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Cotto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars, Becca Cahal, and Ashley Langholz. Artwork by Anya Miller. I'm Fitz Cahal and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.